Chapter Twenty Three of Mad Barbara by Warwick Deeping. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three. They will tell you in those parts how Waller, the parliamentarian, battered with his cannon the Purcell's house of Thorn, leaving it half ruinous, as a warning to all royalists who felt tempted to trust in the breadth of their moats or the stoutness of their walls. Be the woodland legend what it may. The Purcells were poor after the long war, and Thorn had been for thirty years a haunt of owls and jackdaws, a strange, dim place set in the midst of stagnant water, far from a high road, and hidden by wastes and woods. From broken gable-ends and tottering battlements, a red-brick tower and a few twisted chimneys rose against the blue. Even in those short years, Ivy had climbed up over the walls, pouring over the stone sills of the windows, and growing knotty and stout of stem, even up to the leaden water-spouts of the tower. When the wind blew from the southwest, the whole house seemed to shake and glimmer with the movements of those myriad leaves, and through the windows of roofless rooms you could see the sky redden or grow gold at dusk or sunset. As for the moat, it was a chequer of black and green, with more hens swimming on it and water-rats making rippling tracks from wall to wall, while here and there great rambling roses, that had not felt the knife for many a year, poured over the brick parapet, and hung in summer-like banners of green, flowered with crimson and gold. The crown of the bridge had been broken, and several tree-trunks, ranged side to side and banked with earth and brushwood, filled up the gap. The courtyard gate, a new one since Waller's day, seemed the only unruined thing about the place, but the courtyard itself was knee-deep with grass and weeds at hay-time. In the garden there were stretches of turf that had once been lawns, paths that were no longer visible, roses and shrubs growing as they listed, for a corner of the vegetable garden alone had been kept in cultivation. The outhouses and stables in the kitchen court were crumbling and falling in, a quaint medley of ragged thatch and gaunt roof timber, falling plaster and lichened brick. Yet the old thorns that grew in the grassland beyond the moat, thorn trees that had given the house a name and were outliving it, stretched out their flat tops like so many pleading and appealing hands. They were white each spring, above the green rushes, the brown mole-heaps, and the dew-wet grass, and in the winter the birds flocked to them and fed upon the red berries, welcome indeed, when the turf was frost-bound, or when the snow lay deep. So the old thorns lived on, as they had lived for generations, while thorn crumbled brick by brick, and the ivy, as though yearning to hide its nakedness, made it dim with glimmering green. Thorn had its ghost, and no Sussex churl would come within half a mile of it when dusk began to fall. An old Scotch gardener and his wife had lived there some ten years, warm and snug in the rain-proof kitchen, daring the devil and all spirits and insects with a handful of good sulphur. McAllister and his dame had been given their quittance that autumn, and had been packed off into some distant county, no man knew why or where, and no man cared. 
The owls might fledge their broods, the jackdaws build in the chimneys, and the place be given up to all manner of mystery and ghostliness. None had troubled in those parts about Thorn, save one farmer who had needed a new barn, and had driven a wagon over to thieve bricks, and come away with such a scaring that every one believed him when he swore the place was cursed. There were ghosts at Thorn that autumn, but solid, hungry, and most gluttonous ghosts, who seemed to have abundance of good beer and food, stowed away in the huge cupboards of the kitchen. The kitchen and the two rooms over it had been made habitable for the McAllisters, and were now used by the new spirits who haunted Thorn, a big, stocky man with a back like a flagstone, a comely, broad-hipped woman with black eyes and a tight, hard face. They had come there suddenly, when the moon was full, walking by the woodland track from a great black coach that had set them down upon the high road. One evening in October, as the dusk was falling, the figure of a man, a burly blotch of darkness in the half-light of the yard, came across from an outbuilding that was used as a woodshed, with an apron full of oak blocks for the fire. Farmer Knapp, he who had come to steal bricks, had told how he had come to the gate of Thorn, and had seen through the grill, not a foot from his own eyes, a great white face as big as the moon when full. Farmer Knapp had not taken a second look, and although it was only three in the afternoon, he had jumped into his wagon and driven off with his cart-horses lumbering at a canter. Now the man who crossed the courtyard, carrying his billets of wood, had a piece of white cloth covering his face, tied under the chin and about the forehead, with two holes for the eyes and a slit where the mouth should be. The huge calves of the man's legs rubbed together as he walked, and under the brim of his beaver his pate was as bold as the ivory knob of a gentleman's cane. He went down into the kitchen by three steps and a short passageway, and tumbled his wood into a corner of the open hearth. At the table the woman was stirring something in a basin. A big black pot hung on a rack and chain over the fire, and on the bricks before the hearth lay a dog of the mastiff breed, who lifted his head and blinked when the man entered. "'Supper ready?' "'Throw some more wood on, Sim, will you?' The man tossed two or three blocks into the red heart of the fire, pulled a rough settle forward with one foot, and sat down and stared at the pot. The firelight glittered on the eyes behind the white cloth, showing up the red lids unshaded by the trace of an eyelash. "'Lord, what a dull hole this is, or I'm saved!' The woman had her sleeves turned up, and her big forearms were brown and comely. "'Dull,' said the man, "'when there's plenty to eat. "'And drink, Sim?' "'Better than Tyburn or Newgate, anyway. "'Only there ain't nothing to lay one's fist to, "'not so much as a dog for old Blizzard to take by the throat. "'Turn smuggler, my dear, if you want to let blood.' "'The man sniffed at the pot. "'Smuggler? No, thank ye. "'We don't want none of those gentry inside Thorn, "'stodging about the country for a keg of liquor "'when we can have it for going to the cupboard. "'This juice viz of mine smarts like hot Hollands to-night.' He untied the strings and turned the mask up, but the woman did not look at him, it being near supper-time and food upon the table. They were not Sussex folk, nor even country people, 
by their speech, but gentry whose childhood had been passed within hail of Southwark or the Savoy. "'Who's going to carry the girl's food up to-night?' The man took an oil flask and a piece of linen from the long shelf above the open fireplace. Over the shelf hung a long gun and a couple of heavy pistols, also a seaman's cutlass and a pair of iron wristlets. He dropped some of the oil on the rag and began to dab his face with it, blinking his red lids like an owl. "'Take it up yourself, Nance. I'm tired.' She looked at him with a shrewish lift of the chin. "'Tired, you great hulk. Dang those rickety stairs. They make my knees ache. A bat put the candle out last night. Mother of God, I wouldn't be here another week but for the doubloons.' Think of the smell of the sausage shops and the snug little tavern Southwark way. I would give a gold decubus to sniff the river mud at low water. They might take us for papers from St. Omer. As for the girl, Black Babs, she's no more mad than I am. The woman had a certain air of culture. The culture, perhaps, of a bold and clever orange girl who had caught some of the courtliness of the playhouses and the gardens. "'So we are papists,' quoth the man, still dabbing his face, "'and to say whether a wench is mad or not is none of our business.' "'It's my business, Sim, to see no one drops a noose over my neck. "'Noose be damned. "'When a great gentleman opens his purse, you slut, "'wise folk ask no questions. "'Perhaps not. Lift the pot off. "'My lord pomposity wishes the girl mad, I gather, "'and mad she will be in six months.' with the winter coming, or maybe stiff as a frozen bird, then it will be old Drury and Whitefriars again, as likely as not. Captain Grills will be blackguarding it this way with orders before long. They must get us fresh supplies sent in before December. That's the real business of life, Sim, to be sure. There's the girl's bread and dripping. Run up with it like a good lad, or I shall spoil the pudding. You had better take the lantern. The old tower is full of bats and draughts. The man put the oil flask on the shelf, and, dropping the white cloth over his face, took down a horn lantern from a beam, and lit the candle in it, with a burning brand from the fire. He trod on the dog's paw in the doing of it, and gave the beast his boot in the ribs, because he presumed to snarl at him. "'Anything to wash it down?' "'I filled the jug this morning.' Simon Pinniger picked up the pewter plate, and marched off swinging the lantern. From the kitchen a passage led to what had been the hall, now rafterless, with the stars blinking between ivied walls. A flight of steps led to a door that opened into a lower story of the tower. Simon put the lantern down, pulled out a key, and unlocking the door, picked up the lantern again and began to climb the interminable stair. Thud, 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 up into the darkness, with the light from the lantern swinging this way and that, and the raw cold of the autumn night breathing in at the open squints, and through the shot-holes that could be seen here and there in the walls. Simon Pinniger climbed sixty steps or so, passing two narrow landings, before he came to a door with a bar across it. He put down the lantern, unlocked the door, lifted the bar that worked upon a pin, and, opening the door about a foot, pushed the plate in with the toe of his boot. "'Supper,' was all he said. "'Then, after the turning of the clock and the creaking of the bar, "'the thud, thud, died down again into the darkness of the stair. 
Only one thing moved for the moment in the tower room, and that a mouse who came out boldly to nibble at the bread on the pewter plate. A single window, high up in the wall and closed with stanchions, let in the brown gloom of the dusk and the glitter of a star. There was no fire, no furniture to speak of, and nothing that could be broken and used as an edge to cut and wound. In one corner stood a truckle-bed, and sitting thereon a still, shadowy figure, whose face showed a grey oval in the darkness. The place seemed far above all sound, though the wind might moan there, and shake the ivy on the wall. The figure rose from the bed and moved toward the door. It went on its knees there, and with cold hands began to crumble some of the rough bread. A tiny shadow crept up toward the white fingers and took crumbs. It was so little a thing, too small to be caressed, yet it had grown tame in one short month, and, above all, it was alive. Barbara, kneeling there, fed the mouse with crumbs, and ate some mouthfuls of the bread herself, for there was nothing for her to do, at Thorn, but to watch for this friend at dusk, or for the white pigeons that sometimes flew up to her window during the day. She could see nothing of the world, not even the waving woods, but only the clouds moving, and a few stars at night. One book they had given her, and that an old Bible bound in faded red leather. She had read it twice from cover to cover, sometimes with listlessness, sometimes with fierce hunger, sometimes with tears, and for an hour or more she would sit on the bed and think, her white face thin and questioning, but with no madness in her eyes. End of chapter 23